Welcome to the second part of the podcast featuring Durga McBroom from Blue Pearl. In this part, Durga comes to Europe and achieves chart success, talks about the loss of her husband and how new music is on the horizon. I found this a fascinating insight into an artist, someone who clearly derives satisfaction from her art. Hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Now, if you want to connect to me, connect to me on Instagram, steve.blame. And, uh, well, for now, let's go on with the podcast. Here's Durga talking about how she became a backing singer for Pink Floyd. My sister, Lorelai, was signed to Capitol Records. And another friend of our older siblings was um, Nile Rogers. They grew up in the same building. And so Nile was producing the album. And I'd flown out to New York to sing on her album. And um, at that time, the Momentary Lapse Reason Tour had started. Uh, you know, David and Nick and Richard Wright had come out and had a lot to prove. Uh, and they only had two singers at the time. And uh, David wanted to do some live concert videos. And as he put it, add some color. So he wanted to round it out with three more black singers. So he asked Michael Pilo, who ran the production company, shooting the videos, if he knew any black singers. And Michael was friends with Lorelai. So he recommended Lorelai. And because I happened to be there, she recommended me. And uh, another friend of ours, Roberta Freeman, who I just spoke to this morning. Uh, and we sent in photographs and some tapes of us singing. And they said, right, you sound great. Come down. And uh, <laughs> I knew... I, I was a fan of Pink Floyd. I loved Dark Side of the Moon. Um, but I didn't know what any of them looked like because they made a point of not putting their pictures on their albums. And so we're sitting backstage and here comes this man with an acoustic guitar and he goes, hello, I'm David. Shall we go with some parts? And I'm like, who's this? I don't really. And then I heard him sing and I was like, oh. <laughs> and um, then we went over some of the harder parts and we were meant to watch the first show and then jump in uh, on the subsequent shows to film. And he said, well, you sound great. Would you like to have a go tonight? And we said, yes, because what are we going to say? I'm not ready. No, of course not. So we did the gig and I walked out in front of 15,000 people. I'd never sung in front of more than 400 before that. And something in me said, yeah, you're home. This is what you're meant to do. And they subsequently asked me to join the tour. And I stayed with through the last show in 1995 or four, whichever one it was. You said they had something to prove. Um, oh, Dave Gilmore particularly had something to, uh, uh, something to prove because of the incarnations uh, of Pink Floyd and also because yes. of the, the history of the, of, of the music. And was there a, was there a sense of nerves about that tour that you could, that you could feel? I mean, he's an incredibly calm man. I've interviewed him and he's very yeah. laid back and centered yes. and you don't, you don't feel any of sort of any emotion that could be dangerous in any way. Do you know what I mean? You would never know it. I didn't find out until much later. I was a child, you know, I was in my twenties. So I, and I was thrust into this giant, I mean, this behemoth of a world tour. It was the biggest tour, um, I think, of that year. And they battled it out for first place with the Stones on, you know, subsequent tours. Um, so I wasn't, I was clueless. I had no idea what was at stake there because this was their first album and tour after they split with Roger. 
I didn't really know the history, a lot of it. I mean, I was a fan, but I wasn't a fanatic. Like some of the fans, some people love to like send me pictures and send me this obscure thing, these things. And, and David was playing uh, this guitar with this gauge of, of strings on this amp. And, you know, I don't give a shit. I'm not that kind of a fan. I worked with the band. I don't need to know the minutia. But a lot of people love that stuff. So I didn't even know that much about what had happened between them until I was in the band. And then I was like, oh, and, and so, and it was really harsh. I felt bad for Roger actually, because he had a tour out, the Radio Chaos tour was out when we were doing the Momentary Lapse of Reason tour. So we were in full spinal tap fashion playing the enormo dome in town and he'd have a little like 5,000 seat arena that he was having difficulty selling out because we were selling out everything um what did you learn so, from them everything <laughs> okay what's everything <laughs> it was the best musical finishing school i could possibly have gone to to start at the top like that really um i learned how to hear myself, how to make sure that I can hear myself, what a good balance sounds like, um, to, to uh, insist on perfection. And in fact, when I started, uh, Rachel Fury and Machan Taylor were already in the band and they did not gel well in many respects. And they were kind of jockeying for power position in different ways that I'm not going to go into, but um, let's just say they would take it out on stage. And so they would try to outsing one another and they both had very high, very cutting, somewhat shrill tone. And um, Steve O'Rourke, God bless his soul. God bless his soul. Um, the band manager. Um, he came to me and said, look, saw out this section or you're all fired. And I'm like, what me? I'm the new girl. I don't check it out. All right. And I went to the girls and I was like, you fucking bitches, you need to stop this shit on stage. Or I'll kick your ass you to start blending or I'm not having it. I'm not fired behind your bullshit. And um, we started to blend and I'm the one they kept for all of the tours after that. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm probably going to jump a bit here, but in terms of when did you meet youth? How did that come about? Was that then coming to Europe? <laughs> it's, or? it's not a jump at all, actually. When we did Pink Floyd Live in Venice, um, that amazing spectacle. Uh, wait. Is, is that him on um, the phone? <laughs> no, no. It's, it's, uh, sorry. It's my, sorry. Um, I met him at that gig because it was, you know, the gig of the century, basically, it was roughly 300 to 350,000 people turned up, which they weren't expecting. Um, and he came and uh, <clears throat> he came to me after the show and he said, uh, I really like your voice, man. I'd like to make you a star. And I said, okay. <laughs> and the first song we wrote together was Naked in the Rain. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame.
that must have changed your life. That must have been a moment where you you had a different energy and and movement in your life. What what happened? Well, uh, the song came out, and you know I'm pretty oblivious in for the most part of my impact on people because I I'm just me. You know I'm not particularly pretentious i can be when i want to be but um for the most part i don't you know people see me and you know i've had people come up and start crying when they met me and i'm like what what's wrong with you stop it um but it really hit me one day when i was shopping in the king's road and i was walking looking at shoes and i saw these beautiful boots in the window and it was a basement shop so i went downstairs to go ask how much the boots in the window upstairs were and as I entered the shop, Naked in the Rain came on the radio. <laughs> and the shop girl, was it a girl or a guy? I think it was a guy, actually. So I was like, oh, I just wanted to ask you about those boots. And he looked at the radio and looked at me and looked at the radio and looked at me. And you could see the wheels turning and, you know, like that meme with all the math. You know, it, it, it was really quite funny. And I, I was very amused. But then I think, um, <clears throat> I don't know if it was that same day or another time, there were three or four girls who saw me shopping and they started following me in and out of shops, singing at me. Take me dancing, make it in the, sing it, sing it. It's her, it's fucking blue ball. Look, it's her, sing it. And that was kind of annoying. Um, but I was mostly pretty lucky. I didn't, I haven't really been inundated by a lot of people. I guess a lot of people also don't realize that I can be somewhat imposing. I mean, I stand in flat feet at five foot 10. So when I've got five inch heels on, you know, I'm six, three. So I'm a big bitch. <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned about uh, people's reaction to you. Do you think it changed you in any way? Did it give you anything? Did it take no. anything from your life? No, no. See, and that goes back again to what we were talking about earlier about the foundation that my parents built for me. I did not seek this out to fill some void in my soul. I did not seek this out to find a validation that I felt was missing. I like me. I'm very comfortable in my own skin. So if anything, it's kind of an annoyance um, because it gets in the way of just being, but I'm, I'm, in fact, I'll tell you just, you know, during the pandemic, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard here in Los Angeles and, uh, Sweetest Taboo by Sade came on the radio and I was transported immediately back to summer of 2019 with my sister. Uh, I've blagged this gig my favorite gig at this spa called the Term Prehistorici, which is just outside of Venice in um, the countryside in Italy. And it's this beautiful spa hotel and they do this jazz by the pool summer series. And so they'll give me like five nights in the hotel and then we do one night show and um, still get paid a little bit, but it's basically like a paid vacation. And it's one of my favorite gigs because they have this fabulous buffet of Italian food and they set up all the tables by the pools you know these beautiful thermal pools that they have there and we do this great jazz gig and uh in 2019 i did that with my sister 
and we love singing together. And the band was amazing. And we, I added that song to the set and I sang it with a slightly more jazz arrangement. And I was playing shaker. And it was one of those moments as a musician where you're not even looking at the audience. They, they didn't even need to be there. But this, when the song is coming off better than rehearsal, and everything just falls into place and you all look around at each other, everyone playing, and you've got this big grin on your face because you're like, we're in the pocket. This is the shit. We are making this song sing alive. We make, this song is alive in this moment because of what we're doing. And you're just flushed with this joy of creating music. And... Um, I went to open my mouth to sing along when I was driving down the street and I burst into tears because I realized how much I missed that. You know, the pandemic hit musicians harder than just about anyone. I mean, people were getting exemptions to go to church and silliness, but music, no. Live music, nope. Now, one of the highlights of your life must have been coming to my birthday party. <laughs> I was going to say, that was, I, I wish we could do that again. Well, that actually, so we may fun. be doing it again because I talked to no. our mutual friend, Manos, and he's thinking about Yay! it. But it's going to be, I don't know whether it'd be on crutches by then, but we're definitely <laughs> going to do it again. So maybe, let's, what do you remember? I can't even remember what year. I think it was like 92, 93. Well, it was your 33 and a third birthday. So, okay, so 92, 93, yeah, 92. Yeah, so, that sounds uh, about right. Yeah, and, and I've got sort of vague, because I had one on thir- when I was 33 and one when I was 34, and I've sort of mish- mashed them all together, and I'm not really sure. But I, I've had this image of you running, which I put in slow motion on MTV, at the Olympic Stadium. Yes, in Greece. yes, yes. <laughs> do you have a, I would love to see that footage. Oh, no, I, I'm going to dig that out and send it to you because it's, please, I, I, I will find it. It's really, great. really funny. I think it's somewhere you online. What I remember, I remember that running in the uh, Olympic Stadium, the original Olympic Stadium. I remember seeing the, the guardsmen uh, in their uniforms. I remember eating fabulous food. I remember, uh, okay, then the party itself. I remember riding into the venue on the back of a Harley with the local Hell's Angels set. Um, I remember, of course, Kim Mazel being so fabulous. And um, was, was Nina at that party, Nina Hagen? Or was that a different time? Well, I think you came to both, didn't you? Both years. Yes, so Nina, yes. Nina was the following year, really. There was okay. Nina Adamski, so yeah, no, the DJ. Adamski, Adamski was the one with Kim, I remember, because it was Nina, oh. no, no, me and Kim Mazel and Adamski, and that really tall, blonde woman, Nordic. Rebecca DeRuvo? No, mm, a presenter. No. no, 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 no. She was a singer. Oh, La Camilla. Yes, La Camilla. Oh, my God. Yeah, La Camilla. Devoured Adamski. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, that was why. And I remember, <laughs> I actually... How 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 much detail do you want? <laughs> well, he he was on crutches, so I'm, I don't want to go there, really. <laughs> no, no, not with that. No, it was what went on that night. Because I remember, oh. remember that girl that was walking around going, "Open your mouth," and she oh, was <laughs> like Tina, the holy sacrament. I, I live with these people. <laughs>
You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. How do you yeah. look back on, uh, on, on those years in relation to today? Do you look back with nostalgia or just with like, that was fun, but I'm this person today, because we all change and develop in life, and I'm this person today, and I'm comfortable and happy in everything with what I do. Um, there's definitely a great deal of nostalgia because it was, that was the day, you know, back then I could walk in, do a 20 minute set, boom, five grand, you know, 5,000 pounds. Boom. Yeah. I missed that. That was great. Um, and it was just, but I still do that. Not quite for that much money, uh, at the moment, but I still do that a lot. I still travel all over the world singing. Um, it's, it is a little different now, um, but I'm doing more things now. I mean, my sister and I, Lorelai and I put out Black Floyd, uh, an album of some Pink Floyd covers sung from the perspective of black women, as well as some originals. Uh, there's a song I wrote with John Karen, who I toured with Floyd with, who works now with Roger Waters. And one song I wrote with Guy Pratt, who now tours with Nick Mason. And a song Lorelai wrote with Lemmy Kilmister, um, believe it or not. Um, I'm in better voice now than I've ever been in my life. So in that respect, I'm very happy where I'm at. Plus, like I said, I just lost 40 pounds. So I'm starting to look like me again. I was getting kind of like Big Mama's house there for a minute, and I was not enjoying it. So I changed it. Um, I look forward to seeing what's next. That's the, the only reason I would not want to die now is because I want to know what's next. I literally, just a couple of weeks ago, I jumped out of an airplane. I went skydiving. And it was fantastic. And I'll tell you the best part of it. Aside from the initial free fall. Well, there was, there's a couple parts. When you have to ride up to get to 10,000 feet, I thought I was going to be like, oh, my God, this is scary. I was so calm. And I felt such peace. And I realized it's because... I knew that if I bounced that day, I'd be good. I've done so much in my life. Thanks to people like you and um, other, you know, Steve O'Rourke, who blessed me by uh, hiring me. Well, he and David, of course. But he said to me, after my two-week probation period, where they made sure I could actually handle the gig, he said, Durga, we've got all the money in the world. We can hire whomever we like. And we chose you. And that changed my voice. Even my voice got bigger out of that vote of confidence. So I've done amazing things. So if I had died that day, I would have been fine. That was great. Then uh, when you get to 10,000 feet and you've got a guy strapped to your back, he flips the door open. And I, in the front, had to swing my legs out of the plane so that my legs were hanging out over nothing. And it was like, okay, we're doing this. And then he pushed us out of the plane. That, those were the two best parts. Um, my life is pretty damn good right now. I'm actually, I don't want to say yet something that is in the works in case I'm, I'm waiting for some funding for something huge. 
And uh, that's what I mean when I say I want to see what comes next. If I pull this off, you'll know about it. <laughs> You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Life is full of everything. Life is full of high points. It's full of uh, low points. It's full of challenges. It's full of... And it's also full of tragedy as well. And you've had your share. Yes. I know this is going to be really difficult, but I really wanted to talk to you about it because you you had a, the great love of your life, I presume. Mm, and so far. <laughs> He, you know, sadly, he passed away. He died. Yeah. Yes. How did you ever get over that? That's really something I, I really feel like I need to know because it's such, must be such a difficult thing. It is. It, it has been. Although, even though he was the great love of my life to date, um, he was a very damaged individual. He had a lot of issues. Um, so it was incredibly tumultuous. Uh, I know that I've been loved in a way that a lot of people will never experience. I mean, the man literally tattooed my name across his heart. Um, but what came with it was a great deal of turmoil. And uh, I'm ready now for the next love of my life who is going to bring me a lot of peace. Getting over that was hard. Um, but it's part of, death is part of life. It's part of the balance. And I'm happy to say that at this point, I mean, there's some things I'll never be over, but I took from it some incredible jewels. Like youth and I have actually recorded another Blue Pearl album. We're just trying to get it released. And there's a song on there that I wrote in the aftermath of, uh, you know, I started touring again and we were living in this building that I live in now, but in the apartment directly below here. Um, and I came home from the airport and came around the corner and he'd lined the walkway with roses and candles and there was a champagne bucket. And because our anniversary was like two days later. And so it was a welcome home slash anniversary thing. And we spent three full days in bed making love and you know we'd kind of fall asleep and then wake up and make love and you know eat a little bit and laugh and make love and fall asleep and this whole thing just we had really good blackout curtains so you couldn't tell what time of day or night it was and it just turned into this swirl of time outside of time and I wanted to capture that in a song and I did and having him in my life gave me that uh as well as when I was just talking about playing Blanche Dubois, I now have this extra whole range of colors in my artistic palette that I didn't have before he died. I have an access, immediate access to a level of pain that I didn't have, which is actually, it sounds horrible, but it's an amazing gift as an artist to have access to that because when I express it, it's not only very cathartic for me, but it's cathartic for the audience as well. And that's partially why I let myself go there. I can, I mean, now when I sing, the, the, I had to fly out three days after he died 
to do a show, to do some shows in Italy. And that first show was really hard um, because I started to cry like in the first song a little bit, but I've learned how to use that and just bring depth to what I'm singing. And it inspires an automatic response in the audience of the same release. So it's very, it's a real privilege to be an instrument of release for people in that way. And that's another, that's where I'm at now in my career. That's what interests me is not just being cute and singing and sounding good. I want to be an instrument of emotional release and engagement for people. Well, as I said in the beginning, I mean, you're a beautiful person. I love the fact that you're so open and honest and also that you're at a point of your life where you're really looking forward to the next part of your life, which I think is such an important thing of people. I'm going to say our age, I'm three years older. So (laughs) I think of more, (laughs) four years old online. Um, And what I look forward to, of course, is that we do get together again one day. Maybe then it's in Greece and we have some fun and we relive our youth. (laughs) I would love that. I would love that because there's just next to Italian men, Greek men are my favorite. And while I'm still single, I want to get that in because I know I don't think I'm going to stay single for too much longer. I like being married. 